Disney episode 21 Ant Man and the Wasp Quantum Mania. Welcome back, welcome back. Welcome back to Disney, a podcast for Disney fans. I am, of course, your host, Christopher. And in this episode, I'm going to be talking about Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania. This is the third entry in the Ant-Man film series, but uh, you know, I honestly don't really love the first or second. I know that's probably an unpopular opinion because uh, the first one especially seemed to get a lot of love from MCU fans, but I just don't feel the need to rewatch those anytime soon for this podcast. I probably will someday. I'm not saying for sure. I definitely will, but I probably will someday, and uh, this one is just a lot more recent, and it's one that I watched not too long ago, like I want to say maybe two or three months ago, and I thought, well, if I'm watching it, I might as well cover it on the podcast anyway. So yeah, I'm talking about Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania, which uh, came out in 2023. And this is one that I honestly was really excited about because I overall really enjoyed Loki season one. And, uh, you know, we get Kang introduced in the finale. Spoiler alert. Sorry if I spoiled Loki for you, but it's been out for quite a while. And if you're listening to this episode, interested in my discussion around Ant-Man and the Wasp Mania, you probably already have that understanding. So hopefully I didn't spoil that for anybody. But uh, yeah, I mean, Loki introduces Kang into the MCU as a character called He Who Remains, which is a Kang variant. Uh, so because of that, I was really excited about this movie because I thought that, you know, it's going to finally kind of take a deep dive into that part of the MCU, into this new mythology around Kang that's being introduced. Uh, so I was really excited. Did it hold up? We'll find out. <laughs> uh, but first, here is some general information about Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. It had a limited release at the Regency Village Theater on February 6, 2023, and then it got its widespread release on February 17, 2023. It is written by Jeff Loveness and directed by Peyton Reed. And the cast, we have Paul Rudd coming back as Scott Lang uh, slash Ant-Man. Evangeline Lilly coming back as Hope Van Dyne slash The Wasp. Jonathan Majors as Kang the Conqueror, uh, although as I will talk a little bit about in this episode, uh, we have seen the last of him at this point. We're not going to see any more Jonathan Majors in the MCU. Catherine Newton as Cassie Lang. Cassie is not new to the MCU, but Catherine Newton is, and I will talk briefly about that as well. Michelle Pfeiffer coming back as Janet Van Dyne. Michael Douglas returning as Dr. Hank Pym. And we have Corey Stoll coming back from the first Ant-Man movie as Darren Cross or slash now Modoc. <laughs> uh, and the movie, uh, the movie's music is done by Christoph Beck. So quick film synopsis of Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Scott Lang and Hope Van Dyne continue their adventures as Ant-Man and the Wasp. Together with their families, they explore the quantum realm interacting with strange new creatures and embarking on an adventure that will push them beyond the limits of what they thought possible. So as always, before I get into actually talking about the movie and my thoughts about it, my observations and all that good stuff, I do have a little bit of trivia for you. As I teased a little while ago, I was going to be briefly touching upon the fact that Catherine Newton is new to the MCU, even though Cassie Lang is not. And Emma Furman who played the now teenage Cassie Lang in Avengers Endgame, 
uh, was recast, the role now going to Catherine Newton. And apparently, uh, Furman claimed on Twitter that she learned about being replaced when Disney released details of the film at their investor day in December 2020. And even though she was saddened to not be coming back, she was still very grateful to have been a part of the MCU. And, you know, this is really disappointing. You know, really not cool, Disney. It really isn't, because this is someone who had already been hired for this character. Cassie is still a teenager. Not that much time has passed since Endgame. Uh, and for her to not even be notified, like, she has to find out secondhand. Like, that's not cool. Do better, Disney. Uh, this is the first Ant-Man movie, not co-written by Paul Rudd. And according to Joanna Robinson, author of the book MCU, The Reign of Marvel Studios, which I will uh, put a link to in the show notes, Marvel was surprised at this movie's poor reception and low box office returns. And here's a quote. Marvel Studios is aware of what's happening to their brand. My understanding, having talked to some people, is that Quantum Mania really shook them. And I'm sure Secret Invasion shook them further, but Quantum Mania really shook them because they felt like they had something good, because they all internally thought everyone's going to love this. And then they put it out and people didn't. And they were like, oh no, our internal barometer is not attuned to what people want anymore. With Quantum Mania, they were like, we put out a banger. And then that's not how a lot of people felt. So. I'm actually going to talk a lot more later on in this episode, like after I actually discuss the movie, uh, about, you know, my thoughts on the current state of the MCU, and, you know, I have some complex opinions about it, so I will get to that much later on. Uh, composer Christoph Beck claims that Cassie's theme is Ant-Man's theme backwards. I'm honestly not really sure what that means. Is it the notes being played in reverse? Is it... Uh, I'm assuming that's what it is, um, but that's that's kind of cool. That's awesome. Uh, okay, so Jonathan Majors, uh, like I said, we will not be seeing him anymore in the MCU because he has been fired uh, due to abuse allegations, and therefore there has been a lot of discussion around, you know, who is going to replace him, you know, who's going to be playing our new Kang, uh, and. Apparently, John Boyega, Denzel Washington, John David Washington, Lakeith Stanfield, Aldous Hodge, and uh, I might be mispronouncing this name. I'm going to do my best. Yaha Abdul-Mateen II. I am sincerely apologetic if I didn't say that right. Um, but those were among the names that fans suggested to replace Jonathan Majors uh, as Kang after Marvel dropped Majors. But here's the thing. Okay, and I definitely have some thoughts about this. Uh, apparently, Marvel is planning to abandon Kang entirely in favor of a new villain. So instead of recasting him like they unnecessarily did Cassie, even though in this case it is necessary, they're just going to completely abandon this and introduce a new villain? Really? I mean, Again, I'm going to talk more about my thoughts on the current state of the MCU once I get there, so I don't want to really go into that now, but that just doesn't make any sense to me at all. You know, I mean, I hate recasts most of the time, but this is a situation in which it would work because we've seen several times already in MCU shows and movies, you know, No Way Home, and there has been so many, uh, so many examples, Loki, you know, of uh, variants not necessarily having to look identical, you know? So it wouldn't really have mattered. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. Like I said, uh, I do have some thoughts to share later on about my thoughts, you know, about my, my opinions, my feelings about the current state of the MCU. There is, of course, a lot more trivia about the movie than just that. I will, as always, put a link in the show notes to the IMDb page so that you can check out more. Uh, but yeah, that's what I have for you as far as the trivia is concerned. And so let's now jump into discussing the movie. Okay, so I will say that I do really like the opening of this movie. I think the opening is really great. The cinematography is very beautiful. You know, I love the purple and blue color scheme. Uh, it's pretty intense. You know, I really hate those creatures that Janet faces. They're kind of spidery. Uh, they kind of look 
part Demogorgon and part spider, and I'm just not here for that. <laughs> uh, Kang then says, what is this place? And we're left in suspense. So, so much about this opening really does work for me. You know, it's visually striking and beautiful. I love the color scheme. It's unsettling. And it leaves us in suspense. We are left not knowing until quite a bit later into the movie uh, what the context of that scene was. Uh, we then get this, uh, you know, this this opening scene of Scott walking down the sidewalk, grabbing breakfast, greeting people as he goes. And the song, Welcome Back, I believe that's what it's called, is playing. And Paul Rudd is narrating. And uh, we eventually learn that this is all material from a book that Scott Lang has written. He's reading from it at a bookstore, at a public reading. Uh, and I don't know who really wrote it, but <laughs> this book actually does exist. <laughs> uh, I will put a link to it in the show notes. But yeah, this is a real book that, you know, I'm assuming Marvel actually did publish. Uh, probably Disney Press. Uh, and... I don't know who really wrote it, though. Obviously, it wasn't Scott Lang, <laughs> but I just love that. I love that little touch. Ruben at the store where uh, Scott always picks up his breakfast uh, gives him his breakfast for free. You know, he always uh, it's kind of a morning thing. Uh, and it's because Ant-Man Scott Lang is an Avenger. The Avengers saved the world. And so, you know, they're kind of in a lot of places, highly revered and respected almost as like law enforcement, you know, people that keep us safe. And so, uh, yeah, Ruben gives him his, his breakfast for free. And <laughs> this is really funny. Uh, on his way out the door, uh, on Scott's way out the door, Ruben says, thank you, Spider-Man. <laughs> and it does really make sense, right? Because, I mean, spiders and ants are not, they're kind of both thought of as bugs. You know, even though ants are an insect, spiders are an arachnid, they're not really in the same family, but we tend to think of them both as bugs. And so it kind of makes sense that this guy would get those two confused. Uh, but I'm a little confused about this, though, because as I said, Reuben gives him his breakfast for free, but Scott seems a little surprised and taken aback by that. But he's clearly a regular because he didn't even have to order anything. Ruben knew what he wanted. Uh, so has he been charging him before now? Like, has he just now started giving it to him for free? Maybe it hasn't been routine. I don't know. It's not important, but <laughs> uh, just something that I was a little bit confused about. And later on in the car, after picking Cassie up from jail, <laughs> uh, Hope tries to cut through some tension by turning the radio on. And this is a really funny scene. Like I, every time I've seen this movie twice now, and every time I watch it, I'm kind of like buckled over in laughter. I love this scene. Uh, a lot of the humor in this movie does honestly land well for me. And uh, yeah, so that's one plus that I think the movie does have to offer is the humor is good. Most of it. Uh, so Hope turns on the car stereo and Scott's audiobook is playing. And this is what Scott is saying in the audiobook. And in that moment, all I could think was, how did the Hulk turn me into a baby? Will I be a baby forever? Am I the Hulk's baby? <laughs> this is just great. This is so funny. <laughs> and just the looks on their faces, especially Cassie's as this is playing, <laughs> it's just priceless. And I do want to say, I do want to, just a disclaimer here. When I said earlier that that's really not cool, what Disney did, you know, recasting her, recasting Cassie for really no good reason and letting someone who already had the job go and not even having the decency to notify her directly, you know, like that's not cool. But that is not to knock Catherine Newton. I think that she's wonderful in this movie. She's definitely a highlight, in my opinion, at least. Uh, so she she does really give a great performance here. Uh, so, and I do, uh, speaking of Cassie, I really love how she calls Hank grandpa. It's really sweet. And, you know, I just love how unconventional this family dynamic is. It's unconventional, but beautiful. You know, they really are a family. 
you know, Scott and Cassie and Hope and Janet and uh, Hank, they really are one big family, and it's it's very beautiful. I do love that aspect of it. Janet freaks out when Cassie mentions sending a signal to the quantum realm. Our first big indicator, not only that she has been hiding something, but also that she is afraid of something. We will find out that that is very much true. In fact, more accurately, she is afraid of someone. She starts to say, there's something I should have told, but then gets cut off because, yeah. As we'll find out later, MODOK, which stands for Mechanized Organism Designed Only for Killing... <laughs> <laughs> found the signal and brought them to the quantum realm. So, yeah, it's a little bit too late to tell them what you needed to tell them, Janet. When they get there, they're separated into two groups, Scott and Cassie, and then Hank, Janet, and Hope. And Cassie asks, where are we? And I found that to be a little bit weird because it's like, is it not obvious? I mean, you're the one who has been studying this, right? You should know exactly where you are. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I also can totally understand how it might be kind of a rhetorical question asked out of confusion, you know, it's like, or shock, you know, like, oh, wow, it's real. Like, where even are we? You know, I, I kind of understand that, but I don't know. I didn't get that vibe. It seemed to me like she legitimately was confused as to where they were. And it's like, that should be pretty obvious. <laughs> uh, and we find out that the quantum realm has quantum people living in it that it's you know it's a place where people actually live and so cassie cries there's quantum people in the quantum realm and scott replies that he didn't know that either and that's of course like i said when we first realized that there are people living there and that will become a big part of the plot uh michelle pfeiffer is as always phenomenal she's another highlight in this movie for sure uh you know i mean and my favorite performance of hers of all time will always be Selena Kyle, Catwoman, and Batman Returns. She was born for that role. <laughs> she's so great. So, uh, but yeah, she's phenomenal. I don't know what tipped me off. Maybe it was Janet's, you know, I'll handle this. But I remember figuring it out very quickly the first time that I saw this, that Janet and the Nomad Driver were actually friends. You know, like... The movie goes with that trope of, you know, because you see this all the time. You see this so often in, in movies and shows. Uh, it's probably been done before The Empire Strikes Back, but that's the earliest example that I can think of when these two people come at each other and kind of throwing insults and threats and things like that. And you think they're enemies, but then you find out it's all been a charade. They're actually really good friends, you know. Uh, so this is totally like a Han and Lando situation here uh, because... Uh, Janet and this nomad driver, they, you know, they do that thing where they seem to be enemies at first, but then it turns out that they've been kidding around with each other. They're actually friends. So, yeah. Soon after that, Janet tells them that she knows of a way to find Scott and Cassie, that she knows someone who can help. And she says, we're not far from an old friend of mine. And I remember thinking at the time, and I think it was probably wanting us to think this, maybe, uh, but I remember thinking at the time that she was talking about Kang and it's like, uh, it's very likely that this is not, he's not the friend that you think he is. Right. Uh, and I, my expectation was that, you know, he was going to reveal his true plan at some point after agreeing to help them after agreeing to help her. Uh, but that's not quite what happened. I mean, he did betray her, but that already happened. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we'll find that out later in a flashback. So I wasn't quite on the mark, but I was close. She's not talking about Kang, though. She's talking about a man named Kryler, played by Bill Murray. <laughs> I find it so funny that they got Bill Murray for this movie, but he's in it for like five minutes. <laughs> That's why I didn't, like, when I when I mentioned the cast, you know, I mean, Bill Murray is such a big name. It almost seems like I should have mentioned him, but... I decided not to because it's really just supposed to be like this fun cameo, you know, like he's not in it for very long. He doesn't end up being an important character at all. Uh, but it's implied that she had an affair with him. Uh, but it turns out that he is arguably just as untrustworthy as Kang would have been. So I was at least right about her contact betraying her, even though it wasn't Kang. <laughs> Another situation where I was kind of on the mark, but not quite. I do love what Hank does, though. I love this. He throws a device into a glass with one of those strange octopus drinks in it, because we find out that 
one of the customs of these people apparently is they drink this drink that has this little tiny octopus creature in it that along with the drink you're also supposed to eat the octopus and i find it very rewarding what happens here again he throws a device one of you know the uh the devices that make things bigger and smaller uh and he throws it into a drink into a glass with one of those drinks in it and one of those little octopus creatures becomes huge (laughs) really really big (laughs) justice (laughs) but back to scott and cassie we meet some new characters here some residents of the quantum realm we meet veb the source of the universal translator ooze who asks scott how many holes he has (laughs) and we also meet quaz the telepath we meet gentora the warrior who Honestly, reminds me a lot of a blend of the Valkyrie and Okoye from Black Panther. But Scott asks Veb, is that building alive? And Veb replies, yours are dead? (laughs) More great humor here. Like I said, a lot of these jokes really did land for me. Scott and Cassie soon learn that Kang has burned these people's homes. And this runs parallel to what Cassie was fighting against back home, right? Back home, the reason that Cassie was in jail was because she was, I think, involved in protests against the way that, uh, you know, people were handling the snap. And, uh, you know, that's that's handled pretty, uh, pretty strongly in uh, Captain America and the no Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Yeah, Um, that show really does like the villain of that show is ultimately a protest group. Uh, was probably a little bit more of an extreme group than what Cassie was involved in, though. But, yeah, I mean, people were displaced from their homes and stuff like that during the snap, and there are presumably a lot of people now that are homeless because, you know, when the snap happened, those homes were very likely sold to other people, and so these people come back all of a sudden, and they have no home, you know? So... It's very similar, you know, there's meant to be this parallel, I think, between what Cassie was fighting back home and what she's now fighting in the quantum realm. And judging from the look on her face as she's hearing this, I think that she does recognize that as well. During the first big battle scene of the movie, we learn that Cassie has a suit, which Scott had not been aware of. And I love her suit because it's very similar to her dad's, except... In the places where her dad's is red, hers is purple. And purple is my favorite color, so I just really dig her suit. And we then meet the aforementioned MODOK, whom we learn is Darren, a.k.a. B-Guy, a.k.a. the villain from the first movie, (laughs) a.k.a. mechanized organism designed only for killing. (laughs) And the contrast here is really funny. It definitely creates some humor because... He is kind of scary and intimidating with the helmet on, but without it, not so much. He looks kind of ridiculous, very ridiculous. In fact, it's very, (laughs) it's very hard to take him as a threat to, uh, you know, take him seriously. Shortly after this, uh, returning to our team of heroes, Hank, Janet, and Hope, we get the previously mentioned flashback showing us what happened after that opening scene. So we finally, you know, get some more background about that janet helps kang get his ship operational again thinking him a friend you know believing him to be a friend but then when she touches the ship which is apparently connected to his thoughts somehow she sees everything that he has done and she realizes that he has vanquished worlds and even timelines so this is a dangerous conqueror and you know she realizes that I don't want to help him. As she says that he had vanquished timelines, you know, like as she's narrating it and she says that, you know, he vanquished timelines, we get a visual of branched out timelines. And that visual is very reminiscent of Loki. And that makes me wonder if maybe this Kang variant has a somewhat similar motive as that of the TVA. You know, maybe he's destroying worlds and timelines that he feels aren't supposed to exist. 
He even says that he knows how, quote, all of it ends because he doesn't, quote, live in a straight line. He says, quote, if you want to stop what's coming, and trust me, you do, I am the only shot you have. He also had promised Janet that he wouldn't destroy her world, possibly because, you know, Earth 1999, I forget how many nines are there, but, uh, you know, the main MCU universe. Maybe that's what he considers the, quote, proper timeline, the way that things are, quote, supposed to be. So with all of that being considered, it's very possible that this Kang variant ultimately has a similar goal as uh, He Who Remains from Loki. It's just a theory that I'm throwing out there. I mean, I don't know that to be true, but there are definitely some parallels there because He Who Remains basically said the same thing. You know, like if you want to stop what's coming and trust me, you do, then you're going to want to listen to me. You're going to want to do what I'm telling you to do, you know, so interesting. And Kang tells Janet that he can make it so that Janet never left hope because time isn't what she thinks it is. Now, his ship can apparently travel through the multiverse, but Marvel, even in the comics, doesn't seem to make a distinction between timelines and universes. They seem to be pretty much the same thing. I mean, Kang even refers to his engine core as, quote, a power source that can take you anywhere in space and time. So, presumably, he has the ability not only to travel to other universes, but possibly go backward or forward in time. But it's a little bit confusing because, like I said, Marvel doesn't really seem to treat universes and timelines as separate things. Janet, honestly, truly is a hero. I mean, the huge personal sacrifice that she makes to save countless others, you know? I mean, she severs what she believes to be her only option in getting home, her only option in getting home to her family, to her daughter. She severs that option uh, because she knows that if she takes it, like, even if Kang is being truthful and keeps his promise about never destroying her world, her timeline, uh, you know, she knows that, okay, but my being with my family is not worth the lives of, you know, countless, literally countless people. So she makes this huge sacrifice. I mean, she truly is a hero. Now, I really don't understand what's happening in the engine core. <laughs> that scene is really confusing to me. Uh, Scott, after making a deal with Kang, goes into the engine core and starts spawning multiple Scots. And Modoc tells him that he's in a, quote, probability storm and is seeing the possibility of other Scots. I'm not really too sure what that means. <laughs> but he then says that it's every choice that he could make existing all at once. And given that the engine core has the ability to travel through the multiverse... My guess would be that it's pulling in Scots from other universes, but I don't know because a bit later when Hope gets in and experiences the same thing, Janet tells her that her doppelgangers aren't real. So if they're not real, then clearly they're not, you know, alternate selves coming in from other universes. So I really do not understand what's happening here. I am not sure that the movie understands it either. <laughs> Because it's not explained at all. Like, I don't think it's satisfactorily explained. And it doesn't make any sense. But anyway, it's a funny scene. It's an entertaining scene. Uh, there's a part of it that really reminds me a lot of Ralph Breaks the Internet. When all of the Scots eventually work together to build a huge tower of Scots. <laughs> uh, there's something kind of similar that happens in Ralph Breaks the Internet. So it reminded me a lot of that. And... We then learn that Hank's aunts apparently, quote, passed through some sort of time dilation, living thousands of years in a single day and expanding their knowledge and science, becoming really advanced because, of course, they did. <laughs> this is kind of ridiculous and it's brushed off as totally normal, but in some ways I think that works because that's also such a comics thing. I mean... It's the same with, like, the probability storm in the engine core. I mean, that's the kind of ridiculous thing that wouldn't be fully explained in a comic book. So they're definitely embracing that. And uh, 
you know, in some ways I think it works. Veb closer to the big climax of the movie gets shot up. And I remember the theater, like when I saw this, I remember that there was a collective, no, <laughs> when that happens, like there were so many people in the theater that said that out loud, but fortunately he does not die. And of course this affords him the opportunity to rejoice because he now has holes. <laughs> uh, you know, he got excited earlier in the movie about the idea of Scott having holes, which, you know, becomes a joke. Of course, it becomes a, a thing uh, a bit. Uh, and so, yeah, now that he has holes in him, he's all happy. And I knew like as soon as he got like shot up and had holes in him and we realized that, OK, he's not going to die. I knew it. I knew it right then and there. OK, now he's going to make a joke about how he has holes now. And he does does not disappoint. <laughs> uh Scott and Cassie are both huge uh at one point they use their technology to become really really big and Scott tells her after she gives a riveting speech to the residents of the quantum realm motivating them to fight against Kang quote I'm so proud of you I feel like I'm hugging Godzilla <laughs> I do find it kind of funny when Scott and or Cassie use their suits tech to get huge though because of course, it's all relative, right? I mean, actually speaking, they're still imperceptibly tiny, right? They're only huge in the quantum realm, but they're still, like, smaller than microscopic in reality. <laughs> so that's kind of just a funny thing to think about. The battle scene near the end, although still not technically the final battle when Kang is taking on and killing all of these quantum fighters is so intense. Like this is definitely one of the most intense scenes of the movie. And it's a really good thing for that convenient quote, time dilation development though, because it's ultimately a combination of the ants and Darren who turn the tides of the battle. If it hadn't been for either of those elements, I think Kang probably would have won this, you know, but because we have this deus ex machina of the ants and Darren, you know, uh, turning over a new leaf and doing the right thing in the end, you know, that's what turns the tides. And Darren ultimately dies a heroic death, but I am not sure how earned it is, to be honest. I mean, it's been a little while since I've seen the first Ant-Man, but I don't really remember him showing many redemptive qualities in that movie. And he doesn't really in this movie either, other than maybe when we see Kang be mean to him, you know, he says, do not speak when I am in the room, despite his loyalty, right? So that could be part of the reason why he ends up deciding to, you know, fight for Scott and Cassie and everybody else instead of Kang, because he realizes that Kang doesn't appreciate me. Kang is awful. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, I feel like it kind of just comes on pretty suddenly that all of a sudden he's a hero now and we're just supposed to accept that. <laughs> and I don't really feel that it's earned at all. After Kang is seemingly defeated by the ants, Janet programs the engine core to take them home, and most of them get home through the portal, but there are still like 15 minutes left to the movie, so we know that it isn't going to be this easy, right? And sure enough, Scott stays behind to stop Kang, who, as it turns out, has not been defeated yet. We thought he had, but he hasn't been. I remember not being surprised at all by this when I saw it in theaters because I expected that this particular Kang variant was going to be the Kang the Conqueror, right? He was going to be our Thanos of this saga. So I did not expect him to be defeated in this movie. So it did not come as a surprise to me. Scott's action, interestingly, also kind of mirrors Janet's from before, which I think shows character development because... Earlier in the movie, he was willing to make this shady deal with uh, with Kang because he was choosing the selfish thing over what's better for the greater good, right? But here, he's essentially doing what Janet did. He's believing himself to be cutting off his only tie back home so that he can stop Kang. And again, like I said, that really is the action of a true hero, somebody who puts somebody else's needs before their own, even when it's really, really difficult. And that's why people are praised as heroes because, you know, it's hard to do. <laughs> it's a very difficult thing to do a lot of the time. So, 
Uh, he is unfortunately literally being beaten. I mean, his face is a bloody mess and it's not looking too good for him. It looks like Kang's got this. And I mean, I was legitimately worried because I could see them killing Scott off as sort of a way for that to be the lesson that he needed to learn. The lesson that Cassie was trying to enforce throughout the movie, you know, and then kind of passing that torch off to Cassie for her to be the new quote aunt girl, although that's not the character's name in the comics. I'm trying to remember what it is and it's slipping my mind, but you get the point that, you know, I could see them killing Scott off as a way of kind of passing the torch on to her. Uh, I mean, he even says to Kang quote, I don't have to win. We both just have to lose. So he was ready to sacrifice himself uh, to stop Kang. Fortunately, however, Hope lives up to her name <laughs> uh, by coming back through the portal to help Scott take him down. And I am surprised at this point. I said earlier that I wasn't surprised that it turned out Kang wasn't defeated because I felt like, okay, this Kang variant is going to be our main villain from here on out, our Thanos. I was not surprised, but here I am surprised because I was wrong. <laughs> I was completely wrong. Despite my expectation that Kang would survive, he does not. It's kind of hard to explain how he dies, though. It's like he's sucked into the probability field of the engine core, I guess. Like, I'm not really sure. Now, he might not be dead because we don't see a body, which is always suspicious. That's always suspicious to me. Like, whenever someone is supposedly dead, but you don't actually see their dead body, yeah. There's a good chance they're probably not actually dead. Uh, but later on, though, in the movie, another variant seems pretty sure that he is, in fact, dead. So he probably is. But, you know, like I said, whenever you don't see a body, that's always sus to me. <laughs> uh, after Kang is defeated, Scott and Hope share a hug. And Scott says, quote, don't ever let go. To which Hope replies, quote, I got you. And... I love this so, so much because it is a total reversal of what you normally see in media, right? Scott is allowing himself to be vulnerable and Hope is kind of acting as his protector. She's comforting him. And I love, I just love so much that it's Hope taking on that role and Scott taking on that particular role uh, because it's a reversal of what you would normally see, right? This is the woman kind of being the comforting protector, to the man who was allowing himself to be emotionally vulnerable, and I just really appreciated that. So at the end of the movie, we get a full circle sort of moment in which Scott is walking down the street again. The same song is playing. Uh, he's picking coffee up from Ruben as Paul Rudd's voiceover narrates Scott's thoughts. And uh, this time, though, Ruben acknowledges that he had been mistaking him for Spider-Man, and he charges him. <laughs> he charges Scott... $12 for his coffee. So A, does this mean that he was only giving him free food and coffee because he thought that he was Spider-Man and that's why he's charging him now, which that seems to be the case. But more importantly, B, $12 for a coffee? Are you kidding me? I mean, I have to believe that that's him charging him for multiple coffees because of how many that he gave him for free, because that is obnoxious. I mean, I thought Starbucks was priced too high. <laughs> so I feel like he's got to be charging him retroactively. There's no other reason or just logic behind a coffee being $12. And Scott is all happy that he has helped save the day. But then the expression on his face changes as he remembers that Kang warned him that if he didn't get out of the quantum realm, as in Kang, if he did not get out of the quantum realm, something far, far worse would be on the horizon. Like I said, this is very, very similar to He Who Remains warning to Loki and Sylvie at the end of season one of Loki. So it's why I'm wondering if maybe this particular variant had a somewhat similar goal. And that could be why, as we'll eventually find out, the other variants are actually the ones that sent him to the quantum realm. They're the ones who kind of exiled him, you know, locked him out of the universe, basically. Uh, and... That would suggest that it would be because his main goal did not align with theirs. So it could be that he wasn't quite the villain in this movie that we thought he was. And I would argue that 
that's not the first time that we've seen that in the MCU. I think that Agatha in WandaVision is probably something similar, but that's a different conversation for a different time. Eventually on the podcast, I do plan on covering WandaVision because I absolutely adored WandaVision. I loved it so much. Uh, So I do plan on covering it eventually. And of course, Doctor Strange, Multiverse of Madness, uh, and the Agatha show that's coming out, I think, next year. I think it's supposed to release in 2025. I'm so excited about that. Uh, So yeah, all of that will definitely be covered on the podcast eventually. But uh, yeah, I think a similar argument could be made that Agatha was actually right all along. (laughs) Um, And that is pretty much the end of the movie. But... As is typical MCU fashion, we get two bonus scenes. There's a mid-credit scene and a post-credit scene. And both are very cool for very different reasons. In the mid-credit scene, we see three Kang variants conversing. And this is where one of them says that he wouldn't have made contact had he not been sure that the, quote, exiled one was dead. They say, quote, there, and he's referring to our heroes, They're beginning to touch the multiverse, and if we let them, they will take everything we've built. And this scene is honestly another example, because the thing is, regardless of, you know, what he has done in real life, and I do support the decision to fire him, uh, but regardless of that, I do think that his acting is spot on. You know, I mean, even in this movie... Kang has a totally different demeanor and totally different personality than He Who Remains did at the end of Loki season one. So it's very impressive. His range is definitely very impressive. And we really, really see it here because all three of these variants are strikingly different. They have completely different personalities, different cadences to their voices. One of them sounds very weak and raspy. Sort of like how Voldemort sounds at the end of the first Harry Potter movie, you know, before he comes to full power. Uh, But then we get another reveal. It's not just the three of them that have convened. There are thousands and thousands and thousands and possibly even millions of Kangs. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. We have a problem here. Uh, Like I said, apparently Marvel's abandoning this, which, okay. Uh, I'm interested to see how they're going to explain how all of these Kangs have just suddenly decided to no longer, you know, carry through with this. (laughs) Um, But it seems like the main purpose of this movie was to demonstrate the threat, to show us just how high the stakes are, because we see how powerful and dangerous just one Kang was. And there are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of them working together. So, I mean... It seems like this is going to be an even bigger problem to contend with than Thanos was. And that's saying a lot. But as far as them deciding to continue with a different villain, I will talk about that in a bit. Uh, But it's really frustrating because I do think that one of the reasons that I do not support that is that I do think that it will basically... I mean, unless they can come up with a really creative way of doing it that I can't fathom right now... I do think that it's basically going to invalidate this movie. You know, it's basically going to make this movie completely unimportant because the whole point of this movie, I think, is to demonstrate the threat. It's to show us just how big of a threat Kang really is. And then in the post credit scene, uh, which made me cheer in the theater, um, (laughs) we see yet another Kang variant using the name Victor Timely. He seems to be some sort of illusionist or magician And there's a crowd of people in an audience watching him. Their attire seems to be, uh, you know, pretty far into the past. It does not look like anything recent in time, and it definitely doesn't look like the future. Probably late 1800s, early 1900s. And Victor Timely then says, quote, Time is everything. It shapes our lives, but perhaps we can change it. And it is then revealed, and this is where I cheered because... It's no secret to anyone who knows me how much I love Loki (laughs) that Loki and Mobius are in the crowd. (laughs) So, you know, at the time I was thinking very likely a scene from Loki season two, and it was, it very much was. Loki says, it's him. And Mobius replies, what? 
You made him sound like this terrifying figure. Loki ominously replies, he is. This is, like I said, a sneak peek at Loki season two. So, but I cheered because I was just very happy to see Loki. And even though I knew it was very likely nothing more than a preview of season two, it was still exciting to see Loki in a movie again because we haven't since Infinity War. Well, no, that's not true. We saw him in Endgame, but that was the Loki from the show. It wasn't technically the same Loki. So anyway, so before I uh, give my rating of this movie, talk about what I liked about it, what maybe I didn't like about it, uh, and of course give a rating, uh, like I said, I do have some thoughts that I want to share about the MCU overall, and basically... I don't remember exactly when it was. This was like several months ago. I was just having these thoughts about the MCU and the direction that it's headed in and what I'm maybe not loving about it right now. And I basically just wrote out this blog, I guess, that I never actually shared because I was like, I'm just going to share this on the podcast. I'm going to save this for when I do an MCU movie and discuss it in that episode of the podcast. So, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read the, uh, the quote blog or whatever you want to call it uh, that I wrote and maybe give some thoughts about it afterward. Um, but here we go. I just had this really crazy thought tonight about the MCU and the direction that it's headed in right now and what it's doing right now. By the way, I don't think that they're going to do this because I think the whole stupid Kevin thing is really just that. That's She-Hulk being a stupid nonsense show. So I don't think that they are going to try to make any sense out of this, but I'm really hoping that they do. I saw an article show up on my Google homepage the other day that said something like how Kang the Conqueror and Kevin might be connected. It got me thinking like, well, what if maybe what that article is suggesting is that Kang either is Kevin or he created Kevin because Here's the thing about Kang. Based on Loki and, of course, now Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, he has variants. He has a whole bunch of variants, tons of different versions of Kang from different universes. There are so many of them. One of them in the comics goes by the name Immortus. I believe that's his name, and as you can probably tell from his name, I don't know if he himself is immortal, but he has the ability to bring people back from the dead. Maybe a Kang variant will bring Wanda back if she is dead. But that's one of his abilities from the comics, is he can bring someone back from the dead. So that's a possibility. But that's not the main thing I want to talk about here. He just happens to be a variant that can bring people back from the dead. But there are a lot of Kang variants who have different powers. So what if there's one who can kind of rewrite reality? What if there's one who can mess with someone's mind and make them hallucinate things and make them think they're part of a show? You know, make them think that they're involved in a TV show. I mean, that wouldn't be too far-fetched from stuff we've seen, especially with WandaVision. That's essentially exactly what Wanda did. So, I mean, I honestly would feel so much better about She-Hulk if it came to that. But I also feel like there'd be people who would be really, really angry about that because they would feel like that just took a giant dump on the show and made it so that Jen didn't have the autonomy that we thought she did. You know, so I feel like that would really upset a lot of people, but I would personally be happy with it because I don't like how it ended. I have kind of just been doing my best to ignore that and pretend that it didn't happen, but I would honestly be happy if it turned out that there is no Kevin, that some sort of AI manifestation that Kang has created for some purpose. I just want to have faith in the MCU that it's going to give me something good because it has in the past. The first saga, the Infinity Saga, was very enjoyable and it paid off, so I want to have faith that this one also is going to pay off like the first one did. You know, Endgame, I found it to be very satisfying for the most part, and I felt like Tony's journey ending the way that it did was perfect, Captain America ending his journey the way that he did was perfect, I mean, I hated that they killed Loki off in Infinity War, and I don't know that I love Natasha's death, I mean... Not that I was ever, like, super, super attached to that character, but I just felt like she really didn't have enough of an arc for her death to have the impact that it could have. They didn't even show us much of her background until her solo movie, and that was after her death. That's not to say that I didn't find it sad, I certainly did, but as far as Tony and Steve are concerned, 
Those are endings I found beautiful and just really great conclusions to basically everything the MCU had been to that point. So anyway, here's my crazy thought. I know we're not very far into the multiverse saga. You know, like, look at the first few movies of the Infinity Saga, and on the surface, there don't seem to be many references to the Infinity Gauntlet or the Stones. It's not easy to tell yet that that's where it's going, that it has that endgame, pun intended. <laughs> but there are still little clues peppered throughout, though, you know, and it's not long before it does start that story along. I think that it's in Captain America, the first Avenger, in which we first see a stone. So it's very early, because isn't that like the second or third movie that came out? I know Iron Man was first, and then I think The Incredible Hulk, and then I think Captain America. So yeah, I mean... I guess that it was pretty early that it started dropping hints and that it started to go in that direction. This saga, on the other hand, it's like they announced that it's the multiverse saga, and it's like, okay, that's cool, but there isn't really a linear direction like there was in the Infinity Saga. So far, this saga has been feeling so disjointed and so unorganized and just wild. I was expecting Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness to basically be a sequel to Spider-Man No Way Home, to basically be a direct sequel to it. The spell that broke loose in No Way Home has had these lingering effects on the multiverse. Things are still creeping through. They didn't solve the problem like they thought that they did. And now he's dealing with the repercussions. That's what I thought the case was. I think all of us did. Seemingly, No Way Home and Multiverse of Madness both take place on Earth 1... Uh, how many nines are even here? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5? Okay, I think. So Earth 1, 9... Nine, 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 nine. <laughs> so this theory doesn't explain that. But when it comes to the apparent lack of focus, especially with the Disney Plus shows, what if it's deliberate? What if there is a method to the madness? What if we're going to get to a point where we're like, oh, that makes sense now, because the reason it all feels so disjointed is that many of these stories have been in different universes. Moon Knight is not the main universe. Miss Marvel also does not make a single reference, a single nod or reference to the snap. Kamala talks about the fight against Thanos in the very beginning, but she does not mention the snap. The way that she tells the story makes it seem as if Thanos was stopped in time. So if the snap did still happen, then I found it very hard to believe that not once in the entire series does anyone mention anyone having gotten blipped. In all likelihood, statistically speaking, probability-wise, Kamala lost half her family if she herself didn't get snapped. I mean, Peter and seemingly all of his friends and frenemies were all snapped, and that is also not likely, but I digress. There is a real-world reason for that. Is it possible that every single member of her family would have survived the snap? Yes, it is possible, because the 50-50 thing is completely random, but it's unlikely. It's incredibly unlikely. In all likelihood, she and or some of her family members, and or Bruno, would have been blipped. Nobody at any single time brings up when such and such, or who and who, were snapped. So, I am really suspicious that not all of these shows have been in our universe, and that's why it feels so disjointed and unorganized, because that's the point. It's supposed to. There's no consistency here. We're jumping around different universes, you know, and it'll make sense when we finally get to the climax of this multiverse saga. I have a feeling that that's what Secret Wars is going to do. It's going to bring in all of these characters from different universes, from different Earths, and we're going to find out that Kamala and Moon Knight are not actually from Earth 199999. <laughs> She-Hulk also maybe isn't. She-Hulk does make references to things that we saw happen in the Infinity Saga, but with the multiverse... If there are an infinite number of universes, then it would stand to reason that there would be many that are very, very similar and maybe even nearly identical, right? But anyway, so yeah, that's my theory. That's my idea. But I guess that we will just have to wait and see where things go. Like I said, I want to have faith that this is all going to pay off. So yeah, uh, those are my thoughts on kind of the, the, uh, the MCU right now. I will admit that there are still several things I haven't seen. I haven't seen Black Panther Wakanda Forever. I haven't seen Secret Invasion. I haven't watched Echo yet. I still need to finish Loki Season 2. I love Loki, so there really is no excuse for that, other than just I've been very busy. Uh, but 
you know, it's like overall, I definitely have kind of lost some interest in it. And this is why, because it has not felt like they've had a plan. You know, what it's felt like is that Kevin Feige basically said, okay, we're doing the multiverse. So tell a multiverse story <laughs> and various people, uh, WandaVision sort of started to touch upon it. Uh, Loki obviously did. What if obviously did Dr. Strange, the multiverse of madness, Spider-Man, no way home, you know, etc. Various writers told their multiverse story and did not worry about whether or not there was a continuity to it. Like that's really, really what it feels like. I mean, what really made me start to fear that they didn't have an end game again, pun intended <laughs> is that again, like I said, in that blog, uh, I mean, Multiverse of Madness was kind of being sold as a direct sequel to Spider-Man No Way Home. You know, that's what it was being presented as. There was even like a like a TV spot or a teaser or something like that that had dialogue that wasn't even in the movie. And I think it was from Wong and he was saying something like, you know, you opened up a hole between the universes, you know, uh, with what you did with uh, Peter Parker and now you're facing the consequences or something like that. And that dialogue was playing as it showed strange in handcuffs being brought forth before the Illuminati. So the promotion for the movie really wanted you to think that this is a follow-up to no way home, you know, the multiverse madness that happened in no way home, you know, it's not over. <laughs> and that's not at all what it was. It had nothing whatsoever at all to do with No Way Home. So the fact that Strange just dealt with a multiverse issue and now is dealing with another multiverse issue is just a complete coincidence. And I was just like, really? There doesn't seem to be any kind of cohesion or, you know, linear motive here. So that's kind of when it lost me, to be honest. Uh, but... You know, again, like I said, the first saga paid off, so I'm trying to have faith that this one will. But there's more cause to worry. There's more cause for concern, for sure. Because, like I said, the Infinity Saga showed a plan, you know, pretty early on. It showed a—there were little clues peppered throughout of where it was going. But I have not gotten that sense at all from the multiverse saga so far. In fact, that's what I was going to talk about as far as like how I feel about, you know, them deciding to go in a different direction with a villain is that's going to make this seem even more discombobulated. Like I would really love to believe this theory that I'm proposing that it has felt disjointed and discombobulated because a lot of these stories have been in different universes. I would love to believe that. But even if that is the case, I don't necessarily know that, you know, I said in that blog that it will get to a point where we'll be like, oh, okay, now it makes sense. Now it's meshing together. But I'm not sure even if that is how it's going to feel. If it is going to feel rewarding, if they do give us that reveal. I'm just a little bit, you know, I'm, I'm hesitant because, again, the fact that they are deciding to abandon Kang and go forth with a different villain means that basically... You know, this movie, especially Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, is invalidated. It doesn't matter anymore. I mean, we're quite a ways into this saga now. And we still don't have much uh, to go on as far as, like, piecing together where it's going. <laughs> especially not now that they've apparently announced that they're going with a different villain. So... I don't love that. Like I said, I would have much, much rather they recasted him. Because even though I normally don't like recasts, I think that it would be fine in this case. Because like I said, we've seen before that variants don't necessarily have to look exactly the same. You've got, we've seen three different Spider-Men, right? Uh, Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, and Tom Holland. They all exist within the Marvel Cinematic Multiverse, as we saw in No Way Home. And they don't really look that much alike. So we've seen that happen before, where variants have looked different. So... You know, we could have just like a main primary Kang who is kind of, uh, you know, leading the rest of them, but we don't necessarily need to see the rest of them again. But 
we see that their leader, the person who's kind of controlling everything, the main Kang the Conqueror, if you will, is played by this new actor, and it doesn't matter because he's a variant. But whatever. I'm not Kevin Feige, so... <laughs> so my rating of this movie, like I said, I definitely have to tip my hat to Jonathan Majors because he is clearly, despite, you know, apparently not being a great person, he is clearly a gifted actor. He who remains in Loki is funny and charming, but Kang here is very scary and intimidating. So I think that really does, like I said before, show his range. And this movie is honestly a lot of fun. And I enjoyed it a lot more on my second viewing than I did the first time. The first time I saw it, when I saw it in theaters, I really felt like 95% of the movie being set in the quantum realm was a limitation. Which is kind of ironic because you would think that, oh, like a movie being set in a completely different dimension that doesn't resemble our world at all is going to make it, you know, like it's it's going to be the opposite of that, but that's not at all how it felt to me. And I still kind of feel like it does feel limiting. Uh, the quantum realm in this movie feels contained and kind of claustrophobic. And like I said, I do still feel that way, but I also had very high expectations going into this movie because of Kang. I was expecting more connections to Loki and for it to really delve deep into the multiverse thing. And it doesn't really. It doesn't do anything that I was expecting it to do. Like I said, it really just seems like a setup movie. It's it's setting up, it's showing us the threat. It's showing us how big of a threat Kang really is. That's really the main purpose of the movie. However, when I went into it a second time, which normally I will do that. If I see a movie in theaters and I like it enough that I feel like I'm going to watch it again, I will watch it again because... I'm someone who likes subtitles and movie theaters. Usually with that experience, you do not get subtitles. And there have been movies that I've seen. Uh, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is a great example. I saw that in theaters and I could barely hear anything. I saw it with my brother and he said the same thing that, yeah, the audio is way too low. I mean, people were whispering in the movie and I could just barely make anything out. So of course, when that came out on home video and streaming and everything, I had to see it again so that I could pick up on that dialogue that I missed. So normally if I see a movie in theaters, if I like it, I will watch it again and I'll pay even closer attention to it. Uh, the second time I knew what to expect. So I had a lot more fun with it. You know, it's funny. It's full of heart. I also love how complex it all is because, I mean, I've mentioned the podcast The Villain Was Right before on the podcast. I've mentioned it many times. I really, really love this podcast. It's a lot of fun. Basically, they examine movies and shows, mostly movies, but occasionally they will do a show like they did WandaVision, for example. Uh, and this would be a great one for them to take on because what they do is they kind of, like as the title of the podcast would suggest is they try to look at a story from the villain's perspective and determine, you know, were they really completely wrong? <laughs> Did they have actually some good points? Uh, and this would be a good movie for them to do because Kang presumably would have stopped or at least tried to stop all these other Kangs from wreaking havoc. Like I said before, that seems to be his purpose. Uh, but there's also another way of reading that, which is that it's not that he's not going to be a threat. It's not that, you know, oh, if you stop me, then all these other Kangs are going to come and you're going to wish you didn't stop me. I mean, yes, but also I think that there is a little bit of a clue in the movie, like a hint that it's not just that it's personal. He wants to wipe out the other Kangs, not really just to stop them from invading, but because he wants revenge on them for exiling him in the quantum realm. So I think that there's some selfish motivation there too. And it could also be that he doesn't want to share the glory. He wants to be the sole conqueror. He wants to be the only one conquering. But anyway, you know, this movie is definitely not without its flaws. It seems, as I said at the top of the show, when I was in the trivia section, uh, it seems like this did not get a lot of positive feedback and it didn't for me initially. I'm still not saying it's a phenomenal movie. <laughs> it's not, it's definitely not perfect. Uh, and I think that, unfortunately, like I said, if Kang is being uh, ignored from here on out, this movie is going to be even less uh, kindly responded to because it's basically going to become invalid. Uh, but I would ultimately settle on a 7 out of 10. And, you know, I think that 
that's fair because after my first viewing, after I saw it in theaters, I probably would have said like a five. I probably would have given it like a like a five out of ten. And I'm now bumping that up to a seven because I did have more fun with it my second time. Like I said, the humor, a lot of the humor really lands for me. It's very funny. It's full of heart. You know, I do really love the relationships, the family dynamic. I love the relationship, especially between Scott and Cassie. So, I mean, I enjoyed it overall. You know, I didn't hate it. And I had a lot more fun with it my second time. So... Those are my thoughts on Ant-Man and the Wasp, Mania. If you would like to submit feedback to me, and that can be about anything Disney-related, you can uh, email disneyshpodcast at gmail.com. You can join the Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash disneyshpodcast. You can follow the Instagram page, which is also disneyshpodcast, and that is D-I-S- N-I-C-H-E-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. There are no underscores or anything. It's all one word. And if you would like to, you can also follow my personal Instagram page, which is The Lost Passenger. Once again, all one word, no underscores or anything. Please be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening so that you never miss a new episode. And uh, speaking of new episodes, next up on the podcast will be The Little Mermaid 2023. I'm finally tackling the live action version. I'm looking forward to that, and uh, I will very likely be being joined by Rick for that, so that's exciting as well. So until then, though, this has been Disney's once again, welcoming you back, welcome back, welcome back. Yeah.